You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. So let me invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we continue our series through this book. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, and by the way, my name's Will, and uh, I really am humbled to be able to open God's Word to you all this morning. And uh, let me just invite you to look beginning at verse 23. We're going to read through the rest of this chapter um, and then prepare Clint uh, next time for a really great sermon on head coverings. Uh, so um, let's, uh, let's, let's begin here in, uh, in verse 23. Paul says to us, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Bethel, this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Can I invite you to bow your head with me and pray? Father, we thank you that you're a speaking God and that you have uh, things to say to us this morning. You have a call on our lives as people living in this time, in this place, in White House, Texas. And so, Father, I pray that your word would come clearly to us. I want to ask for a couple things. One, I want to pray for people who maybe, uh, with a smiling face on this morning, deep inside, just feel distant from you. Uh, maybe it's just perpetual backsliding. Maybe it's something that they've done this week or that they just keep doing that makes them feel distant from you. I pray that they would see the sufficiency of what Christ has done to set them free. And I pray for another group of people in this room this morning. I pray for people um, who are just loveless right now, self-absorbed, considering their needs before everyone else. I pray that you would mobilize a group of people from this service who will go into their homes, this church, into this community, seeking to lay down their lives in love. So would you mark us with love this morning? We'll jump into this passage in just one second. Can I invite you, even where you're sitting, to invite the Lord to speak to you this morning in your own way through his word?
Father, we say, speak to us. We're ready to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, this is indeed another obscure passage in 1 Corinthians. And uh, I was actually, to be honest with you, very excited when Clint gave it to me, though, because this passage has within it my life verse. I don't know. Do any of you have a life verse? Um, you know, maybe some of us do, some of us don't. It perhaps is like a, a moment when the Lord has really spoken to you and kind of defined your identity or maybe given you a promise. Uh, maybe it, it, it kind of defines your sense of calling and purpose in this world. Um, for me, verse 25 is it. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions. That is, that is good news. If that doesn't get you excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning, I'm not sure what will. Um, what, Paul, are, is this what you're telling me? That I, that I can go to a meat market and I can eat whatever is set before me, regardless of the cut, regardless of the animal that it came from, that I can just enjoy it and I don't need to raise any questions about that? Uh, Bethel, that is good news for us to consider this morning. Um, <laughs> But this was obviously, as we can see again, if you've been with us for a little while, a big deal for the church in Corinth. They were struggling with what to do with meat uh, that had been sacrificed to idols. Are we allowed to partake of it? Are we not? Does that somehow contaminate me or disqualify me from worship or God's community if I eat some of this meat that had been involved in idolatry? Now, that feels perhaps pretty uh, far removed from our lives here living, uh, you know, especially in like the barbecue capital of the world, right? Like that seems like an issue that's not really like weighing on us very heavily. And so there might be a temptation within us for a passage like this. We'll just check out. This doesn't have anything to do with our lives. Like I doubt any of you came to church this morning wondering if what you ate last night disqualified you from participating in worship this morning. It might have disqualified you from your New Year's resolution, uh, but I, I doubt that you're concerned about the ramifications for worship. But the good news and the reason why we shouldn't check out this morning is this. The issue of meat that had been sacrificed to idols is actually the secondary issue in this passage. Can I tell you what the main issue that Paul's trying to address in this passage? The main issue that Paul's trying to address is our selfishness, our self-absorption, our considering our own needs before the needs of others. And I don't know where you stand on meat, but there's not a person in this room that doesn't deal with that. And so as a people who are naturally selfish, self-absorbed, that lack love, the invitation from God's word to us as his people this morning is this, to glorify God by living a life of love through building others up. Can I say that one more time? The, the invitation from this passage this morning is to glorify God by living a life of love through building other people up. And here's, I think, a helpful way for us to kind of get our mind around what's happening in this passage. I wanna, I wanna break it down in this way, okay? A couple questions and then just an overall observation. First, I wanna ask this question. What has Christ set us free from, number one, Number two, I want to ask the question, what has Christ set us free for? And then I want to wrap things up with just laying a, a vision on us as God's people for, for how we ought to go about our lives, okay? So what's Christ set us free from? What's he set us free for? And what is the vision that Paul articulates that, that we should walk in as, as God's people? Let's ponder that first question, uh, what has Christ set us free from? What has Christ set us free from? 
So here's the situation in Corinth. You have a city where idols are everywhere. Of course, there's the temples where sacrifices are regularly happening, uh, but it's not just there. If you're living in the city of Corinth, very likely when you go to work in the morning, let's just say you're a, ch- uh, a ship builder or a blacksmith, there's some like patron god that a sacrifice is given to, and, and so it kind of complicates your life as a Christian. Or if you're invited in someone's home, there was some patron, patron god that would often be recognized before a meal was eaten, and so this is a city where idolatry abounds and it makes it complicated as we can see for these first century Christians. In in the previous chapter, uh, John did such a great job. uh, The the, the thrust here is, uh, as followers of Jesus, don't play games with idols. You've been set free from idolatry. Be singularly focused with all of your affection on the Lord Jesus. That's the issue in chapter 10. But it, it brings up this question. But Paul what do we do at the meat market? Because like all of the meat there has somehow been involved in a, in a sacrifice to idols. What, what do we do with that? Well, if you are here a while ago in chapter 8, you remember there was one conversation about it for uh, what Paul called weaker brothers and sisters, meaning there were people who might see you eating this meat that would be tempted through, through your conduct to return to the temple themselves or to engage in idolatry again. And so Paul says in that situation, don't eat that meat, leave that meat alone. Uh, but he focuses then on just meat that's been sold in the, in the market, and he, he actually has a somewhat surprising answer. So uh, the conversation kind of goes something like this, uh, uh, beginning in verse 25. So, hey, Paul, I just heard you say, idolatry is serious. Don't, don't play around with idols. So I probably shouldn't eat any of the meat that's sold in the meat market, right? Paul actually says, no, you, you can eat that meat. You, you can enjoy it. And maybe they'd say, wait, wait a second, Paul, what if that meat's somehow been, been sacrificed to an idol? You're fine. Don't conduct an investigation to see where it came from. Just, just enjoy the meat. It's not a big deal. But Paul, what if it had been offered in a sacrifice? Uh, well, he quotes a, a psalm and says, actually, it doesn't belong to that idol in that temple. Uh, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This meat actually belongs to the Lord. So, so you're saying that I can eat that meat, but, but Paul, what if an unbeliever who practices idolatry invites me over for dinner? Can I eat the meat that's on that table? He says, sure, participate. Are you serious that I can just, just eat this meat that's, that's being, being offered on this table? Yeah, what, what, if it's been, what if it's come from pork? It's okay, no big deal. What if it's a, a medium well ribeye that's been offered to Zeus? You send that back because God's people don't eat medium well. We eat medium rare, but other than that, <laughs> Other than that, you're, you're, you're fine. Like, do, do you hear the freedom that Paul's articulating in this passage? You, you're free to eat that meat. You don't need to worry about it. Now, to us, it's like, okay, no big deal. But you have to understand the context of the first century, especially for religious Jews, uh, even more so, the idea of just eating any meat that had been involved in idolatry or the idea of even sitting across the table from a Gentile, let alone a very uh, idol-worshiping Gentile, like, that's outrageous, like, how do we go from the, the, the strict concerns that were happening under the old covenant and under the popular uh, ways of going lo- about life when it came to idols to now just eating whatever you want? Like, I, I want you to hear a couple things. Number one, th- this, these concerns about idol meat are not just an overly zealous person that doesn't want you to enjoy a nice ribeye. Like, there's actually legitimate concern with eating this meat. For example, uh, listen to what Exodus thirty four fifteen says. 
Lest you make a covenant, just talking to the people of Israel, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you're invited and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. That's pretty weighty language about eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol or sitting across the table from somebody who's an idol worshiper. Wow. Like that, that would leave you pretty uh, cautious about just stumbling into to the dinner table with that going on. And then, you know, there's this uh, apocrypha. It's, it's this religious writing in between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. And so uh, this would have been just popular, uh, like reading, religious reading in those days. We don't recognize it as the Bible, but it would have been popular in those days. Jubilee 2216. I want you to hear this exhortation to God's people. Separate yourself from the Gentiles. Do not eat with them and do not perform deeds like theirs. And do not become associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled and all their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. That's pretty weighty language when it comes to sitting across the table from someone who's participating and enjoying meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And so what Exodus and even that, that passage out of the book of Jubilees is recognizing is this predicament that we find ourselves in. On the one hand, we have a God who is transcendent, who has eternally existed in all of his perfection and holiness and who will not tolerate anything in his presence that's unclean, that has to do with, the, with death, that has to do with disease, that has to do with idolatry. He won't tolerate any of it. And on the other hand, you have people who he actually desires fellowship with who are constantly dirtying themselves up with disobedience, with idolatry, uh, with people who want nothing to do with him. And so that's the predicament that, that the old covenant people find, found themselves in. I could possibly do something that could separate me or put me in danger even of a God who dwells in perfect holiness. That's how they live. And now the apostle Paul is all of a sudden saying, hey, Eat whatever you want. Don't worry about it. What in the world happened that allows Paul to be so liberal with the food that we eat and the people we share our table with? What happened is that a perfect Messiah went up on a cross, a filthy cross at that, carrying every single thing that could separate us from a holy God so that we never have to worry about doing something or even eating something that separates us from our God. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that we don't have to worry about that anymore. What have we been set free from? We've been set free from ever having to worry about something that can separate us from fellowship with God. That's good news. See if you hear it with me in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by our own merit? No, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest who is over the house of God, listen to this, let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, what have you been set free from by the blood of Jesus? You have been set free from ever having to worry about being separated from God. Now, 
There are some of you in, in here this morning, you know, that, that, you know, you're good to go. You're glad to be here. It feels very comfortable. And then there are others that your concern isn't so much that you've eaten something that has separated you from God, but maybe it's that you've done something or you keep doing something that has separated you or cut, off you, cut you off from the love of God. What would a holy and perfect God have to do with someone filthy and messed up like me? Hey, if that's what you're feeling this morning, hear the good news of Jesus. His blood is sufficient to cover everything in your life. Even if you've fallen yet again this week, his blood is sufficient to cover you from that so that you can draw near to the Lord. That is the freedom that we have. We have been set free from anything that can separate us from fellowship with God. But once again, that's not actually the main concern of this passage. That's great news, but the main concern that Paul's capturing here is not so much what we've been set free from, but what we have been set free for. These are very important distinctions. And what Paul is dealing with is a short-changed, you could call it a, a truncated view of freedom that the people in Corinth had and that many of us living in East Texas have. We misunderstand what true biblical freedom is all about. You can hear it in this quote that Paul is doing at the beginning of our reading this morning. This, this phrase that's come up a couple times in the book of 1 Corinthians. They recognize they're free, so they say, all things are lawful for me. I'm free. Essentially, I can do whatever I want. I'm free. And Paul's going to help them understand that's actually not how biblical freedom works. So many of us think freedom in Jesus means we get a get out of jail free card. We don't have to worry about death and we're going to heaven. And so live the rest of your life doing whatever you want. That is not true biblical freedom. True biblical freedom is not just that you have been set free from something, but you have been set free for a purpose, for a calling. And you will not experience true freedom until you're walking in the purpose and the calling that God set you free for in the first place. So, so let me try to describe it to you like this. At home, I have a red bone coon hound. She's a hunting dog. Uh, she, she's been a pain in the butt. She's starting to come around, okay? Um, she's about four years old now. And, uh, you know, there, there are times where I need to restrict that dog. She needs to go in the crate and she needs to, to be in there because we've got somewhere to be. We've got something to do. And so, so Piper, there she is in there. And I'll come home and I'll liberate her. I'll set her free and she'll roam through the yard She'll dig into the trash. Um, she'll, she'll, she'll wander around uh, and just kind of aimlessly exist. She might chase a, a squirrel here or there, but that's about it. Now, some would, uh, would look at that and say, oh, look, Piper's free. Sort of. Can I tell you, though, where that dog is experiencing more freedom than it's ever had in its life? It's when I take her, not, not just out of her crate, but I get some hunting gear out. I put her shock collar on. I, I, I get our hunting gear, and we go hunting. And I need to bring her with me because I don't have very good aim. Uh, but you will never see a dog more joyful, more alive, more free than when I give her the command to go track down a deer that I've lost. She is fully alive, fully free, not just when she's wandering around aimlessly, but when she's walking in the purpose that she was made for. Do you understand that? 
Like, you, your freedom as a Christian is not just that you get to do whatever you want. Uh, what, what is our freedom? Let me invite you to consider it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. You cannot see it said anywhere more clearly than Galatians chapter 5, set, set, uh, verse 13. We've looked at what we've been set free from. If you want to see what you're set free for, look at this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You have been set free from ever having to worry about anything that can separate you from God, food or deed. You have been set free for the purpose of using your freedom to bless others with your love. That's the calling on our lives. That's what biblical freedom is all about. Using your life by glorifying God through a life of, of love, through a life of building other people up with your freedom. And so what Paul's gonna do with, with the rest of the, the, the section we're looking at this morning is help correct their freedom. Essentially, the structure goes like this. He's gonna give them an exhortation at the beginning about what true freedom is all about. He's gonna give a case study or a situation in which they should uh, uh, walk in that exhortation. And then he's gonna zoom back out and just give them a general exhortation to love again at the end of the chapter. So, so beginning in verse 23, it's that false view of freedom. All things are lawful. I can do whatever I want. Paul says, not so fast. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. Not so fast. Not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's the exhortation. To live selflessly. Don't just consider yourself and your freedoms. Consider what would be good for someone else. And then he gives us a, a case study, a complicated situation. You've been invited to a dinner party by someone who still worships idols. They don't follow Jesus. They've invited you in. You're enjoying the meal. And then it gets a little tricky here in verse 27. You know, first he says, if, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're supposed to go, go, eat whatever's before you. You don't need to raise any questions. You don't need to conduct an investigation. Where did the meat come from? But if he says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you. What's going on here? couple reasons why they might be telling this Christian that this meat has been sacrificed in an idol. Number one, and I think this one's less likely, he's inviting that Christian to participate in the idol worship himself. That, that could be one reason. The more likely, given the context of what comes right after, is this. He knows that he's just invited a Christian over for, for dinner, and he has been around Christians enough to know Christians don't play games with idols. Christians shouldn't be eating meat that had been sacrificed from, from, to an idol. And so in this unbeliever's mind, for this Christian to participate in that meal, it would come across as compromising. It would come across as being hypocritical. It, it would come across as this, as this Christian really not taking their faith very seriously because this unbelieving person doesn't understand that they're free. And so Paul says, actually, in this situation, where normally you're free to eat whatever you want, this would actually have an adverse effect on your unbelieving neighbor. So in this situation, pass on the meat. Even if you're hungry and it's been per cooked perfectly, pass on the meat in this situation. And then the language gets even a little more tricky. Essentially what Paul, uh, you know, people, commentators who look at what he says here in verse uh, 29 is essentially this. Even if I've given thanks 
what good is it for me to be condemned or to be judged by this unbeliever? That is, be seen as a hypocrite in, in, in the eyes of this non-believer. Uh, Paul said, what, what benefit would that be for them if I were to participate in this meal, even if I participate in thanks? And because it wouldn't be good for them, I'm going to forego on it. And then he's going to zoom back out, right, after this specific situation of a, of a neighbor that you can lay your freedom down for for the sake of love. He's going to zoom back out and just give us kind of a vision for all of our lives, okay? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense, that is a stumbling block, something that would cause, hinder someone from believing the gospel. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, key word here, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. On the one hand, Paul reminds these Corinthian Christians, you are free but freedom doesn't mean aimlessly wander through life like a paper bag in the wind, just doing whatever you want. Freedom for a Christian means use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's what we've been set free for. So what I want to do is shift from kind of theory and, and, and theology to, to getting a little bit more practical. Um, what does it look like for us to use our freedom in love for the good of other people? H how does that work practically? So, so last piece here, a new vision for our lives, building one another up in love. Um, again, live for the glory of God, love your name. That can be a bit vague. That can be a bit, uh, a bit abstract. And, and, and there's a phrase that Paul uses here that I think will be helpful for us to understand what this life of love actually looks like. And it's right back there at the beginning when he's having this conversation about their freedom. He says, all things are lawful, and he corrects them with, not all things build up. This is uh, where the, the, the Greek translations from this is where we get the word edifice, a structure, a building, a, a construction project. Essentially what Paul is saying is this. Love looks at someone and says, how can I build them up for the better? How can I bless, encourage, breathe life into someone else uh, for the sake of bettering them? And it's the literal analogy of constructing, of, of like, uh, you know, putting together a house. And so, um, you, man, one of, the, one of the men I respect most in my life is my father-in-law. His name's Andrew. He lives back in uh, northern Virginia. And he's one of these guys, like, he can fix or build anything. Um, and, and what's been so cool through the years of watching him is that there are little construction projects all over where we used to live, where he has just come in free of charge and helped build something for someone that didn't know better. So you could go to a house and see, oh man, there's a wheelchair ramp for somebody that was uh, becoming disabled that he helped build. Or, you know, there's a faucet that was leaking all over the house that he helped fix. Or, oh yeah, there's a back deck that was deteriorating, but that family didn't have money to fix it. And so he used his gift to help it. He can, he can kind of look on the landscape of his life and see, man, I've, I've built up structures, um, you know, as a, as a, as a act of of love in the lives of other people. Now, for some of us, maybe that's a literal way that you can love people. For others, the least loving thing that you can do is show up at someone's house with some power tools. Um, but but here, here's the vision that I want to call us to with the remainder of our lives, no matter how long we have. I want to look out at the horizon of humanity, maybe beginning in our homes, looking at our church, 
looking at our community and asking this question. I've been set free for the sake of love. Who can I build up with the time that I have here? So that we could look back at the end of our lives and say something like, oh, look what God was able to do through Christ expressing his love for me. This marriage that was falling apart, I was able to pray for and speak encouragement to and now it's thriving. Or this depressed teen that was miserable and floating through life, I was able to share the gospel with and now they're alive and thriving. Or this person that showed up at church and wanted to follow Jesus but didn't really know how, I was able to step into their world and help them follow Jesus. I can look at the landscape of my life and look at building projects in people's lives that God has used me for, for the sake of love. That, that's a good vision for our lives. It's a lot more exciting than even consuming really good meat. And so Paul's going to give us, I think, a couple categories of people that we can build into with our lives. The first one being, obviously in this passage, people who don't know Jesus at all. Listen, I, I, what does it look like for us to build into the lives of non-believers? I think it's cool, first of all, that Paul envisions and is dealing with the issue of Christians in proximity, relational proximity with people who don't know the Lord, so much so that they're sharing meals together. And I think it's under this recognition of how things have changed from the old covenant to the new, okay? So in the old covenant, the thought towards unbelievers was stay at a distance, they might influence you. In the new covenant, the exhortation is draw near, you're going to influence them. Draw near. So I think one of the ways that we build into the lives of people who don't know the Lord at all with this life of love is simply by drawing near, being in proximity to people who don't know Jesus. There are times where how we build into the lives of an unbeliever is by simply, you're never gonna see them again and you just share a quick word about Christ, a quick word encouraging them to read a gospel perhaps, um, a, a quick word encouraging them to listen to a sermon. There are other situations where in a place like White House, this is actually a long game of proximity and I think asking intentional questions. So about a year ago when we moved here, uh, there, we, we saw on a Facebook page that uh, my, uh, someone needed help raking their, their leaves and they were going to pay somebody. And so, uh, of course, I sent my son out there to serve them in, uh, in doing that. And so, so, so he helped out with that. But we were able to get to know them a little bit. And uh, we kept their number. And they, they're kind of a mess. They're coming from a broken home, uh, kind of nominally Catholic, weren't walking with the Lord, uh, but we were able to cultivate a relationship. And so it was such a joy over the span of the past year. They ended up moving away, but they were at our house at... Uh, pool parties that we had at, at a 4th of July celebration. And there were times where uh, believers from Bethel or maybe myself or Chelsea would, through this new relationship, ask intentional questions that get to the heart of life, the heart of spirituality, the heart of eternity. And I guess my question for you, recognizing that these first century Christians were sharing meals with people who didn't know Jesus, who could you invite in who could you share a meal with um, that, that would, would serve the purpose of building them up, um, uh, constructing this, this, this project that God has for them of knowing the Lord and growing in him? I think that's, that's the first group in mind. And then I've got one more group and then we'll close. The, the other group here is obviously the group of discipleship, those who need to be discipled. Uh, so we've looked at building those who don't know the Lord. What does it look like to, to build into those who are walking with him? Well, you can't find a better definition for discipleship at the end of the chapter here. Uh, uh, they're not even sure what chapter to put it in, quite honestly. But it says at the end of it, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
That's discipleship. That's, that's what that is. We uh, follow a risen living Savior. And not that we're perfect, but we invite other people into our lives so that they might grow and follow him as well. There's so much that I could say about discipleship. It's going to be one of the focuses for life groups as we walk into this winter semester. So gear up for that. But I think one of the things at the bare minimum that helping disciple someone and build them up in love uh, as a Christian is, is by simply doing this. By being aware of the shortcomings, of the spiritual struggles, of the challenges of other believers in your life. Not so that we can be gossips and, you know, uh, enjoy some, some nice information about other people that make us feel good about ourselves. No, being aware of the shortcomings and the struggles of other people so that we might play a role in helping them build and grow. Like this, this analogy of a builder to build something, you need on the one hand a blueprint that's the, the finished product and on the other the project. We as God's people need to be aware of where people are at, where they fall short in their walk with God so that we might encourage and speak into their lives. And so my homework assignment on that front is this, as we, as we gear up life groups. Many of you have gotten to know each other's stories. Raise your hand if you've gotten to know some, some, something new about someone in your life group over the past six months. A lot of us who have participated, we've got to know each other's stories from kind of a casual level. We've gotten to know them a little bit. Here's, here's the assignment going forward into this new semester. I'd love for us to enter into life groups and discover some real present struggles that people are facing in their lives. And then just pray about how the Lord might have you respond. Like become an investigator, a learner into the burdens that people are carrying in their walk with God and their personal lives and their relationships and pray how the Lord might respond. Because that, after all, brothers and sisters, is what we have been set free for not to use our freedom selfishly on ourselves, We have been set free, as Galatians describes, to use our freedom to serve one another in love. So as we wrap this thing up, I'm actually gonna reference uh, Mr. Rogers. Did, did he play in Texas? Did any of you watch Mr. Rogers growing up, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Um, He's phenomenal, right? Like he blessed and built into the lives of so many young people. All of the emotionally healthy people here watched Mr. Rogers growing up, right? Um, but he, he had such an impact. And so he was given this Lifetime Achievement Award at the end of his life. And so he came up and he got the trophy. There were all these celebrities there. It was a really big deal. And instead of giving the, the typical speech, he, he gave them just a little assignment that I'm actually going to give to us in this room right now. So here's what I'm going to do. Don't worry, I'm not going to invite you to altar call or anything like that. I do want to invite you to bow your head. Let me just bow your head and I just want you to be able to think for a second. I, 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 wanna, I want you to consider this question. Who are the people who have helped you become who you are today? Mr. Rogers says, all of us have people who have loved us into existence, who have built us up with their love. Would you just take 15 seconds of silence and ponder that question? Who has helped you become who you are today? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.